0: Praise the Lord, worship team. It was awesome. God's good. I got a text message from uh, Louis Almodovar, uh just a bit ago. Uh, Barbara's home now, praise God. And she got a good report. What uh, More than that, I don't know, but she's praising God for his goodness. So we praise him always for his goodness, too. So Father, we thank you for just watching over Barbara and watching over us. You know, where would we be apart from you, God? I, I don't know, but... Just so grateful that uh, we're one of yours, that uh, you've given us the faith to, to trust in you and to believe and to walk with you and to live the kind of life that you would have us to live. And I do pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this evening through your word. Encourage us and teach us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight we're returning once again, family, to 2 Kings chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Uh, Today's message is entitled Lessons at Water's Edge, and we're going to be going into the book of Exodus, and also into the book of Joshua. So we're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 2, but remember from where where we've come, uh, last time Elijah had pronounced judgment against King Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, and Ahaziah, as you know, he carried on the tradition of uh Beelzebub worshipped that which his father Ahab had introduced. And God spoke to him, um, to Ahaziah through Elijah, and he says, you're, you're, he's, he's sick. Remember, he fell out of a window, a lattice and injured himself, and he consulted with the god Beelzebub to see if, in fact, he would live. Well, they went to the wrong god. So Elijah, he sent a message, and he said, you're not going to get up from your bed, and surely you will die. So uh, after he died, his brother Jehoram took over as king and succeeded him on the throne for only two years. It tells in verse 1, and it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Well, somehow, God had given a revelation and Elijah is aware of it that he will not finish his ministry in typical fashion, but rather be taken up supernaturally in a whirlwind. So Elijah's traveling and this is the day that he'll be taken up into heaven. It's important to realize that up to this point in time, Elisha has been accompanying Elijah for about 10 years. They have a long history together. And Elisha has been a very faithful servant, a prophet, in training under the prophet Elijah. He's watching, he's watching, listening, observing the things that Elijah had taught him and how he practiced his work as a prophet. He's learning from him. So, Elijah, as, as I said, knows he's going to be taken up to heaven and he will be going to the city of Gilgal and then to Bethel and to Jericho to visit the schools of the prophets that existed in those days, probably started by Samuel. And they would recognize the leadership of Elijah as, as the prominent prophet of the day. And it makes me think about Elijah, knowing that this would be his last day before going to heaven. And can you imagine if someone would go to you and say to you, listen, you've got one day. You know, not someone, but God specifically. (laughs) You've got one day, and I'm going to bring you up to heaven today. What would you do? What would you do? Well, it's hard to answer that question, of course. But I find it fascinating with Elijah The thing that I find fascinating is that he just continues on doing what God has asked them to do in the ministry. He continued to serve God. No special chains of plans. He planned on going to the various schools of the prophets to encourage the students there, and that's what he did. Probably the person who is the best prepared for the rapture or the return of the Lord for us is the person that can honestly say, along with Elijah, If the Lord came today to take me to heaven, I would just continue doing what I've been doing. And if there's a great difference between what I had previously planned for that day and what I would do if God had said, I'm taking you to heaven today, then there's probably some adjustment of priorities that need to take place. This is Elijah's heart. And it's beautiful to see that Elijah just kept on doing God's will for his life as brief as it would be here on earth from this point in time. And God would see him doing, and I would I pray that God would see me serving him when he comes back to take his church home, to bring his bride home in the rapture without any regret. Now, we're going to see that Elijah will put Elisha through a bit of a challenge to test his commitment to becoming the prophet that would follow him. And we see this beginning in verse 2. It says, And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, For the Lord hath sent me to Bethel, and Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. So this first attempt of Elijah to convince Elisha to stay behind, it failed. Elisha said, there's no way. It's not going to happen. I'm going to go with you. So they went down to Bethel together. And then in verse 3, It says, And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold your peace. So they approached Elisha, not Elijah, and said, Your master is going to be taken away from over you today. And this must have saddened Elisha's heart, I would suspect, because they were very, very close. And he said, "Just, Just hold your peace. There's no need to talk about this anymore. And then Elijah said unto him, the second test in verses 4 and 5, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, "Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace." So, test number three. Elijah said unto him, "Verse six. Tarry, I pray thee, here for the Lord that sent me to Jordan." And he said, "As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee." And they two went on. Then fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they and they two stood by Jordan. So they make their way. These 50 men who are students, they knew something was up. It tells here in verse 7 that they just stood and watched to see how Elijah, or Elijah would be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. I imagine it would make quite a spectacle, wouldn't it? It would be quite, quite incredible to see. So they're just holding off. They're trying to witness what's taking place here. In verse 8 it says, And Elijah then took his mantle... And he wrapped it together, and others he folded it and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither. Don't you love the King James? Hither and thither, well, it means here and there. So that the two went over on dry ground. A mantle is a symbol of God's anointing upon the prophet, a symbol of God's Holy Spirit and God's Holy Spirit's power that would be upon the prophets. So he smote the water. It would be divided and so they could go through on dry ground. Now this whole thing is intended by God to remind them of two great crossings in Israel's history. And this is where I want to direct this to tonight because there's lessons at the water's edge. And we'll get back into 2 Kings next week. But I want to talk about The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, and also the Jordan River. So if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. And we're going to pick up in verse 21. But to give you an idea of what's taking place at this point in in history is this. God, as you know, he brought the children of Israel... Out of Egypt. They were in bondage. And he directed them to a place on the shore of the Red Sea. They were bordered in between a place called Piahiroth, which means the mouth of the gorges. There's mountains and caves on one side, on the other side, Migdal, which is a fortress. On the other side, Baal-Zaphon, a city to the north and the east. And of course, the fourth side, which they're faced with, is the Red Sea. They were in an area with what seemed only one way out. And that one way out is the same way they went in, back toward Egypt. But there's only one problem. The way out is rapidly closing off as the armies of Egypt followed Moses and the children of Israel, and they approached them with horses and chariots. But God said to Moses, and we'll see this in verses 17 and 18, it says, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. And the Lord shall reign forever and ever. I just read the wrong verses out of the wrong chapter. Let's back up here. <laughs> verses verses seventeen and eighteen. It says, And I and behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow me, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor and Pharaoh upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. God said, I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts for this reason they will know that I am the Lord. So in here, there's a hint that God is going to reveal himself in a very, very powerful, miraculous way. Well, as you might expect, I mean, if you were faced with an army behind you, a sea in front of you, mountains on one side, a city on the other, seeming no way to turn, they were afraid. Justifiably so. And Moses said to the people, we see this in verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. The Lord wouldn't say fear not if they weren't afraid. So very clearly the people were frightened. But he did not want to leave the children of Israel in a place of fear. So the Lord spoke through Moses, and I'm sure the words were for Moses too. He said, fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Those are good words for us. Because maybe there's some here tonight that are in a place of fear or anxiety some difficult situation in your life, maybe panic has set in, and the voice of the Lord that would speak to you is, Are these words, fear not. You see, the children of Israel, when they looked up, they saw the problem when really all they needed to do was look a bit higher and see God who was right there with them. And as they approached the shore of the sea, as God commanded And God spoke to Moses. He gave instruction how to protect the people. And notice that God didn't say, I want you to fight them. For more than they are. God didn't tell them to run away. Moses, here's the battle plan. Just lift up your hands and extend your staff over the sea. We read this and we think, well, that's a pretty easy command. I, I could do that. But when I think about Moses, when we consider his life up to this point in time, I'd suggest this. That's out of his character. Remember, his character was to take matters into his own hands. He murdered an Egyptian, remember, who was beating an Israelite. Now, Moses, just lift up your hands. And I'll show you today that the battle is mine. It shows us something here about Moses. He's new. He's a new creation in the Lord. His former ways are former ways. And now he has new ways, the ways of the Lord. Moses, simply stretched forth your hand. Well, how about the people? You know, what might have been going through their minds? What might their reaction have been? Moses, you see what he's doing? What in the world is Moses up to? There's an army coming. They want to kill us and Moses standing there with his arms raised. Well, let's read verses 21 through 31 and see how this progresses. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud, and the troubled the host of the Egyptians." They took off their chariot wheels. They drove them heavily so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, and there remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore." And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. It's really an incredible story, isn't it? An incredible account. The children of Israel, it seemed as though they had nowhere to go. And sometimes, you know, family, we can feel like we're stuck too between a rock and a hard place. What do I do? What do we do? Maybe we ask a question, Lord, I don't get this. Why, why do you have me right here in this place? Or Lord, why did you lead me here? It seems as though I, I'm stuck. I'm stuck between Piahiroth and Migdal. I'm stuck between the sea and this army of Egypt and Bealzaphon on, on, on the other side. Lord, why did you let me get to this point? Well, the answer to that. And it's our first point. We're going to make four points. And the first point is we must see the need. We must see the need. You'll never see the power of God and know the power of God unless we find that we have a need for Him. Because if I can find a way out on my own, I'm going to do it. And because that tends to be the nature of the flesh... I would never experience the wonder of God's power flowing through my life and being manifested in my life. But if I find no way out as the children of Israel, then I'll realize I can't do it in my own strength or my own energy. I need someone much greater than I am. Sometimes the only way to see God's power is if we're kind of hemmed in on all sides. Otherwise... I'll try to find it. I'll try to work it out. I'll resort to my own strength, my own plan, my own program. But God wanted to show his people his power. And he brought them to the place where they were forced to stand still and see the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. You see, God puts people in places like that in order that we would find his power and see his power. The second point. God orchestrates circumstances. God puts people into circumstances in order that we would see his presence. The children of Israel, they were desperate. But something happens to me when God has placed me between a rock and a hard place. Like the children of Israel. What happens? Well, you've probably been there you begin to cry out to God. And you experience His presence in a way that's just enlightening. Just like the Israelites did. They saw God moving powerfully. That was light for Israel. And yet it became darkness for Egypt. And although Israel was was what they thought was were trapped or hemmed in, God showed them a way out. And in a, in a seemingly impossible situation... God showed himself strong, didn't he? If they, ever never, if they never got to that place where they saw no way out, God could not have shown them his way. When do we get our most important and best understandings of the Lord? I'd suggest when we're kind of stuck, when we feel there's nowhere to turn, no place to look. And it's at that time, then, family, we need to look up and see God. You'll never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And we have a choice to make at that time. Choose one, seek the Lord, receive His power and His strength and know His presence, or I'm going to look at my circumstances. I'll see the army that's chasing me. I'll see... The the Red Sea, the fortress, the mountains, I'll panic and fear. And we have that choice, don't we? No, Peter had that choice, remember? He's out walking on the water. He's looking to Jesus and he's walking, 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 and then he realized, I shouldn't be walking on this water. And he began to sink. He took his eyes off the Lord. The third point, God's doing something in those around you also. When we go through these things, God's not only doing something in us, he's doing it in others as well. And you see, there's a work that God wants to do in the sight of others because he wants to make himself known to them. Notice in verse 18 what God says, the Egyptians will know that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I am the Lord. They will know. So through your difficult circumstances, God is doing something in you that he wants to impact the lives of those around you with as well. And that's called a testimony of the Lord's work in your life. But sometimes we can ask a question. I'm one that asks a zillion questions, way too many questions. My wife just said amen. I don't know if you heard that. I heard it. (laughs) But she's right. But the question might be, Lord, why me? Why wouldn't you choose somebody else? Well, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was speaking of the vine and the branches and their relationship to one another, he said this in John 15, 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain. So there's a purpose in all these things that's much greater than I am. And when we go through these things, we can see God's power You receive illumination of God's presence and the effects of it. I mean, we don't often see the effects of it, but they can be and they probably are very far-reaching because God will use your circumstances to not only bring fruit forth from your life, but to show others in your life that He is the Lord and you've trusted in Him. That's important. It's important that we realize that It's really not all about me. I was going to ask all of you, invite you to say, it's not all about me, but (laughs) I won't put you through that. (laughs) I'll say it. It's not all about me, even though I think it is at times. And when we look at those times when we seem to be surrounded by what seems no way out, remember, God is teaching you, but also revealing himself to others around you as well. You might feel, well, I'm stuck in this job, this difficulty, this crunch, whatever it might be, health problems. Yes, you are. And God would say, Listen, let me unstick you in the way of my choosing and for my glory. So it's not only for you, but God is saying, It's for me and it's for others. So, how do we respond? In those times in our life when when we feel like we're kind of hemmed in, will I still glorify God in that situation, in that job, in that relationship through this illness and this crunch? Will I continue to walk with God, even press into Him with more fervency? Or will I kind of back off and fail to acknowledge that that God is really here with me in all these things. He orchestrated this. He allowed this to happen. He wants to show me something. He wants to teach me something. He wants to teach others in my life something about this too. And we can say, well, gee, you know, I, I'm going to walk away from this. Well, I walk away like the Egyptian and drown in a sea of, of meaninglessness and darkness. I think of in John chapter 6 when Jesus shared the incredible truth when he called himself the bread of life and apart from partaking in him there is no life what happened many disciples walked away from Jesus they said this is a hard saying this is hard Jesus and many left and Jesus turned to Peter and he said will you also go away are you going to bail out too Simon Peter answered in John 6.68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. In other words, Lord, there's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to go. I mean, it all relates back to the parting of the Red Sea, doesn't it? There's nowhere else to go. Who do we count on? We have to count on the Lord. And remember too, family, when when you go through things, the, the Egyptians, so to speak, they're watching you. The Egyptians in your life. How will you respond when God puts you in a hard spot or a place of discomfort or even a place of pain? And in that predicament, will you be an example or an illustration and a witness or model for those that we might consider to be Egyptians in our life? Are we going to follow God hard enough to His glory and to His praise so that others will see and question what in the world's going on with you and how can you possibly praise your God in a circumstance like this? And the answer would be, my God is awesome. And He loves me. And He cares about me. And whatever He's doing in my life in the circumstances, to His glory in me, and to others as well. In those times when you're simply hemmed in and trust in the Lord, He will part those seas for you. And you'll be ushered through. How's God going to do it? I don't know. I don't know. But when you reach the other side where God's deliverance has been realized... Then and only then will the Egyptians see that Jesus, Lord, in your life is all about Him. You see, the Lord doesn't exist for us, we exist for Him. We exist for Him to His glory. So, what will be the outcome of those pursuing or observing Egyptians? Well, some will perish in a sea of doubt, right? They'll walk away, they'll call you crazy. They'll call you insane. They'll call you a lot of things. But there will be some that will know that Jesus is Lord. How do I know that? How do I know that someone will know? Well, very clearly, the Bible tells us in Exodus 14, verse 4 and 18, God's greater purpose, that they will know that I am the Lord. God said that. They'll know that I'm the Lord, and he wouldn't have said it if it wasn't true. Some folks will see that you didn't bail out. You didn't fall away. You didn't lay down or turn back. You stood strong in the Lord. You stood still and have seen the salvation of the Lord. And others will also. How do you or how will you respond? Will others in your Egypt know that Jesus is Lord because of your testimony? Will they look at you and say, on the other hand, well, I don't see that they're any different than the Egyptians because there is no testimony. They responded just like I would respond. So it's really important for us, family, that we realize because God is investing in us during these times, He's making an investment in our lives to His glory, and some will see that Jesus is Lord when the seas part. And it's all God's timing. The fourth point. God's plan is to use you. The will of God for you may not make sense to you. The will of God might for some look like foolishness. When the children of Israel approached the sea, God spoke to Moses and simply told him to raise his staff, stretch out his hand, and the people would be saved. Now, God made it simple. Very simple. He didn't huddle with Moses. They didn't put their heads together and develop some elaborate battle strategy. And from a worldly sense, it made no sense. The plan of God was to use a simple man who was willing to obey the word of God. There was no complexity in saving the children of Israel. Moses, simply lift your staff, lift your hand over the sea and divide it. What did Moses have to do? (laughs) That's all. Raise his hand. It's important to note also what didn't he do. He didn't ask God a lot of questions. He didn't debate with God. He didn't say, God, I, you know, I, have, I have no understanding of how lifting my staff in my hand is going to divide the waters. And quite honestly, I can't see that happening. I don't see anything in the history books where anybody's done that before. Are you sure, God? It's not the standing operating procedure of the day. No, Moses simply did what God asked him to do. He obeyed the word of God and lives were saved. And God did the rest. God parted the waters. And the people walked through and they were spared and saved. And then God instructed Moses a second time. Stretch forth your hand over the water. And as he did, the waters covered the Egyptians. God closed that door as a new one opened on the other side. Notice again, it was the obedience of Moses. In his mind, he could have been thinking: the raising of the hand is for opening the waters, not for closing the waters. God, I think maybe you're confused on this one, but no, no. Simply obeyed the word, God did the rest. That's the first great crossing. The second is found in Joshua chapter 3. So if you turn to Joshua 3. And this speaks of the Jordan River. The beginning verse 14. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth its banks all the time of harvest that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a, very, a heap very far from the city Adam, that is beside Zaratan, And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Well, this passage speaks of another miracle yet to come. This is a miracle. There's another one yet to come. As the priests carried the Ark and stepped into the Jordan, look what happened. Verse 16 says, the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city of Adam. Now, the King James falls a bit short here. The word from, in all the translations and through the original language, should read at. So it should read, the waters rose up very far at the city of Adam. That's going to come into play in a minute. Now, the Ark, as we know, the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden box covered with gold. And it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, wood for his humanity and gold for his deity. And for God's people, it represented the presence of God in their lives. So it's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our Ark of safekeeping. We are in Christ. We're born again. We are in Christ, and he is our rock and refuge. And this ark here is going into the Jordan River, and understand that the River Jordan, it speaks of judgment. In fact, Jordan means river of judgment. Now, when the ark went into the river of judgment, the ark, this is really a beautiful picture, being Jesus, the river of judgment that flowed from where the ark went in, flowed to where? Well, verse 16 tells us, down to the salt Sea or the Dead Sea, nothing lives there. The Dead Sea, because judgment brings death. Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. Ezekiel 18:4 says, the soul that sinneth it shall surely die. You see that's the judgment of God. But when the ark went into the river, it says that the water stopped. Now this water, again, it's the Jordan River, the river of judgment. The water stopped all the way back to the city of Adam. In Adam, all die because of the sin nature. But in Christ, all are made alive. And Jesus Christ stopped the water of judgment all the way back to Adam From the very first sin and sin sin inheritance, he stopped the judgment all the way back to Adam. This is incredible to me. He stopped the river of judgment so that the people of God might go through through the Jordan, yes, but pass from death to life. This is a picture of our salvation. And, And what a blessing it is to know this family. And you know what else? The ark entered into the river Jordan at the exact same place where Jesus was baptized many years later. He knew what he was doing when he went to that place in the Jordan River to be baptized. He went into the water, and when he was buried in that water, what was it? It was a picture of his death. And when he came out of that water, just like when we have water baptisms here, it's a picture of resurrection. And because of his death, his burial and resurrection, the water of judgment was stopped all the way back. To Adam. Right where it began. That's the greatest miracle of all time. The death of Jesus Christ brought eternal life to all that call upon the name of the Lord. And I say, praise God. And this is so wonderful. Not only the miracle of the heaping up of the swollen Jordan I would like to see that. I've never seen anything like that happen. But you know what, family? The greatest miracle is the miracle of salvation. It's, it's you. The miracle is so great because it came at a great cost. You see, when God stopped the River Jordan so many thousands of years ago, it didn't cost him anything. He simply spoke and the job was done. But when Jesus stopped the river of judgment for you, it cost him the the life of his own dear son who died in agony and bloodshed, the greatest miracle because it was the greatest cost of God. No greater price could God have paid than the life of his own son. And for us, there's no greater miracle than the new birth. So we need to really understand, family, and we talked about this, I think, a couple Sundays ago, that we really are miracles of God. Our salvation is a miracle. And when we hold on to this, when we allow God's Holy Spirit to just write that upon our hearts, it'll be life-changing. The greatest miracle is that the river of death has been dried up on Calvary. You know, God paid so much for us for so little, yet we're so important to Him. More important, more valuable than, than I can even imagine at this point. But I pray that when I get to heaven, I'll see it more clearly. Let's look at verse 17 again. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. God made a way, once again, when there seemed to be no way. But the Lord's great at that, isn't there? Isn't He, I mean? Isn't He great at making changes that there seems no way possible? Well, maybe there's somebody in your life that hasn't yet experienced the the miracle of salvation. I know many people in my life that haven't yet come to Christ, haven't received that miracle. And maybe we should look at them as, let's, let's call them miracles in reserve. Because God is willing that none perish and all come to repentance. It's His will that they would come to Him. So we need to pray that. Waiting for their hearts to turn to the Lord. Or maybe tonight the Lord is speaking to someone here. Stand still. Rest. Wait on me. Because I'm the God of miracles. And I can make a way where you see no way. Will you stand still? Rest and wait. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 4 and 5 says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. What's the prophet saying? God's going to do it for his glory for his praise. So is there a Red Sea or a Jordan River that maybe tonight seems impossible to cross? Remember the lessons at the water's edge. Prepare yourself for a miracle. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua 24, verse 14 says, Now therefore fear the Lord, And serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. That's what he wants to do. Is that what waiting on the Lord means? doesn't mean sit there with arms folded, does it? No. Engage with him. Serve him. Follow him. Listen for his voice. Obey him. And see what God will do. And we'll close with Exodus 14, 13 again. Fear ye not. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. Don't you love that? It doesn't say I'm going to show you a few weeks from now. I'm going to show you today. God wants to show you something Today. So, Father, we come to you and thank you for the Red Sea, what you did there, the Jordan River, how we've witnessed through the parting of the Jordan River the, the judgment of sin has been taken away, all the way back to Adam. How great you are. How wonderful you are. And help us, Lord, as the word tells us, fear not. Help us not to be afraid of the things that we face, but to trust you in them. And if some of the things that we face are a result of our own mistakes or our own sin, Lord, you have offered us and provided for us a way through confession and through repentance to allow you to have full access to our heart and be refreshed by you because we are under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So I ask, Lord, to help us. If any here this evening feel hemmed in or pressed, whatever it might be, God, show them the way, please. Help us to just lift our heads. And I'm so grateful that we don't even have to do that on our own. The Word of God says you are the lifter of our heads, so we just submit it to you. And ask that you would have your way in us, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.